0: I have a quote that I really liked about the role that women play in the world. And you share that we as men often seek women to make out make our world a loving, civilized, and decent place. And we as a planet now need women more than ever in leadership positions. Our governments, corporations are in desperate need of a new vision, a nuanced perspective, a fresh intelligence.
1: I think that because women... Bring life into the world. And because they nurture children, I, I think that they have a different sensitivity and a different awareness and a different level of empathy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not being sexist. It's, it's like it's a quality that I haven't seen in a lot of men, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a intuition there. There's a, a heightened sense of awareness that I think could go a long way to addressing some of the environmental issues that we have. And a lot of the social issues that we have is, you know, as far as how we help people out of poverty, how we empower people with education, how we empower people in communities. I think that that level of empathy, and I won't say emotion, it's really empathy. I think in a leadership position, I think women can be tremendously influential and, and really do a lot of good.
0: Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question: what it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're tuning into my podcast. For your convenience, the show is available on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. If you want to keep up with all new episodes, and there are so many more in the queue, make sure you subscribe and please do share it with friends and family. Review it and rate it if you can. Every little gesture matters and I thank you for it. If you'd like to know more about me or if you're interested in getting in touch, simply Google my name and it will lead you straight to my website. There's a contact form there or check notes to this episode for links. I love hearing how you listen to my podcast on your walks, hikes, alone times, drives, trips and more. I trust that my guests and I are a wonderful company those adventures. I also enjoy reading how some of you are rehearsing and answering some questions that I ask my guests. I love hearing that. If you're new to the show, please scroll down and check out all the amazing guests I've had over the last few months. If you are serious about investing, money, wisdom, wealth, and living a better life, you'll find plenty of episodes with some incredible ideas. For those who enjoy reading thoughtful pieces, I regularly write articles on Substack, which I'm sure you'd find insightful. Find me there and follow me as well. Finally, I'd like to mention my latest book, Crisis Investing. It's a collection of 100 essays that I penned for our clients during the tumultuous times of the global COVID pandemic. These essays are both timely and timeless, providing a unique perspective on navigating through crises. They were never meant to be published, but here they are available to you please find the book on Amazon. The book has already received considerable recognition and much love, ranking among the top releases on Amazon in its initial weeks. Thank you for your support and for being a part of my listener community. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. My guest today is Byron Tolley. It's his second time on Talking Billions. I had the pleasure of having lunch with Byron in a Parisian brasserie not long ago. We had a delightful conversation on many of the topics we're both passionate about. Byron is the author of Old Money Book, How to Live Better While Spending Less, Secrets of America's Upper Class. He's also written The Old Money Guide to Marriage, Old Money Style, and Old Money New Woman. The Old Money book alone has over 700 four-star reviews on Amazon and over 700 four-star ratings on Goodreads. Byron's popular blog, The Old Money Book, has for the past 10 years discussed topics of personal development and old money culture with a global community of followers. Byron is a grandson of a newspaper publisher and son of an oil industry executive. He's been an occasional guest on radio and podcasts. Today we'll talk about his book, Old Money, New Woman How to Manage Your Money and Your Life Secrets of America's Upper Class. A wonderful book. I read hopping around Parisian cafes earlier this summer. Today, we discussed the creation and intent behind Byron's book. Byron talked about the empowering role of money, especially for women, and the importance of the true nobility. We explored the significance of education and the concept of living life with a purpose. Byron highlighted a need for toughness in life without resorting to negative behavior. He elaborated on his amusing take on diplomacy and the value of patience in life's decisions. We discussed the evolving role of women as economic decision-makers and the need to keep sudden wealth a secret. Byron emphasized the importance of financial planning with the principle of plan, earn, save, invest, and then spend. We touched upon what it means to be wealthy and the critical role women play in leadership positions. Lastly, Byron shared inspiring stories of successful women from history. We left the best for last, so stay with us until the end of the episode. Please help me welcome Byron Tolly. Well, hello, Byron. It's nice to see you again. How are you? Good to see you, Bogomel. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, we had the pleasure of having a nice, brasserie lunch in Paris the other day, so I got to see you in person, and that was lovely. Yeah, it was
1: really, it was really great to catch up and and kind of talk about a broad array of subjects but it's always interesting having a conversation with you because i think you're at the intersection of a lot of what's going on in, in the world as far as not just finance but how people are thinking and how people are thinking young people
0: and more established people so i think you've got you've got a really interesting perspective on it. thank you that's very kind of you to say i noticed that with our conversations i never know where we're gonna go truly and then we end up talking about a whole range of, of topics. And even our first recording, we talked about all your old money book. And it was really interesting that we were supposed to talk about money. And we talked about life and happiness and all kinds of other bigger topics, which was fun to see how the conversation can, can travel. Yeah, it really can bounce anywhere. But today I wanted to talk to you about the other book that you wrote. And it's called Old Money, New Woman. How to Manage Your Money and Your Life. And we have a lot of clients that are women, both women that inherited money and as well those that created wealth in their lifetime and, and both the ones that inherited and, and grew it in their lifetime for the benefit of future generations. And I'm always always curious about authors that write for women because I feel like there's a different perspective and new ideas and, and a lot of really interesting advice that you share in your book. But we, before we get started, I want to start with something that you have in the acknowledgements to the book. And you mentioned how no author really writes alone. And I think it's very true. I, I wrote a few books myself and I know it's, it takes a village sometimes to <laughs> do the research and, and checked all the facts. But you also say that it's even more true when a man writes something for or about women. So I have a question for you and I'm curious to know how this book came about. And can you share more about being a man writing for women? Sure, sure. How the book came about was
1: I'd written, I'd written the Old Money book, I'd written Old Money Guide to Marriage, and several of my friends who were women said, "You, you have to write something for women. You have to address some of the issues that we face as women in within the context of your old money perspective." But it, mm-hmm. and they just said, "You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this," and and. Said, well, okay, I'm, I don't know what you face. And her end, that was the comment that just released the floodgates. All of these emails, all of these late night conversations, all of these very personal stories came through where women were saying, this is, this is what we don't know. This is what we feel like we, that we know, but nobody's talking about it. And this is what we feel like. This is how I've seen things change. Women who were in their fifties and sixties and seventies were saying, this is what's changed. And I can't communicate this to my daughter because she's not going to listen to me. And I'm like, okay, well, thanks. I'm not sure she'll listen to me, but it was, <laughs> it was that kind of insistence that there was, there was something out there to be, there was a message out there that or a message that needed to be presented. And I got this information. A lot of insight. I did a, a fair amount of research, but the whole the whole point of it was it wasn't it wasn't foreign territory to me because I grew up surrounded by women. I had a mother who raised me well. I had aunts and and, and grandparents, and my mother's sister lived with us for a while. I was encircled by really good examples mm-hmm. of women who were productive, healthy financially independent, independent thinkers kind of ahead of their time. There really wasn't the word when I was growing up. Feminism was kind of like, okay, well, I didn't really relate to that because every woman I saw was working, making her own way, married or not. And so that part of it and, and that experience, I think I had a different idea when I started to say, okay, I have to write a book for women. I don't have to write a book for women, but I'm going to write a book for women. And so I had a very different experience. I wasn't seeing women as victims who needed to be saved or the, they weren't oppressed in any Mm -hmm. way, shape or form. They were simply, they were, they empowered themselves by getting a job, getting an education, doing what they needed to do every day, married or not. And so that was, that was where I was coming from with it. The, you know, and, and then when I started writing the book, I don't really. I don't really talk to people when I'm writing about a book. I don't really tell them that I'm writing a book or what it's about. When the book came out initially, there were some reviewers who said, you know, here's this man writing for women. And I was like, okay, if, if you read the introduction to the book, I talk about, Mm -hmm. I talk about that. I'm, you can say, oh, you don't really know how this is. You don't really know how this is. That may be true on a, on a, on a personal level or in some aspects of, what I write about. But the other side of it is, I can tell you what men are thinking. As you try and navigate the financial world, as you try and navigate the corporate world, as you try and open your own business, I can tell you how men think. And I can tell you exactly why they might be inclined to help you or disinclined to help you. And so I, I think it's a little sexist <laughs> to say, Hey, a man can't write for a woman uh, and, and impart information. And my, my hope is that everybody that reads the book will just say, you know what? I'm seeking solid information that I can take action on, regardless of who it comes from. And so mm-hmm. that's really, that's really where the book came from and kind of my perspective coming out of it. I had, I had, I had nothing good experiences with women in my life, including my wife. And so it shaped my view about being optimistic about a woman's place in the world, about the potential that women can have as far as having an impact in the world. I am am really optimistic about that in spite of all the historical challenges and in spite of the current challenges today.
0: I like what I'm hearing. Your writing is very encouraging, very empowering. And you mentioned how money is power. And what we just talked about, that women are sometimes at a disadvantage, but then you remind all of us, and including women, that they're in the driver's seat in their life, and it just takes some awareness, some choices, and some time, and you can get places. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I found it really inspiring, and it's, it's at the beginning of the book, and it, I think it's a very powerful message to everyone reading that they are in the driver's seat. It's up to them.
1: Yeah, if you if you look at the amount... Of purchasing power that women have, Mm -hmm. advertising dollars for cosmetics, for clothing, for all you know, household items. All of this, all the advertising dollars are directed. Not all of them, but a, a huge amount of advertising dollars every year are directed toward women because they make a lot of the purchasing decisions for a family or for men. What the what women don't realize is they are earning money. They are a customer. They're they're not having to say, oh, what will my husband let me spend this week on things? They're earning their own money. They're getting their own education. They're holding their own positions in society and government. And so they have to see themselves as being in a position of influence. I mean, we talk about influencers online. But this is a position of influence in the home, and a lot of times as kind of the pompous and the, and the, and setting the tone in a household. They're also in a position of power with, with how they'll let men, they can dictate that right off the bat. So, so just to give you an example, this is what I saw when I was living in Paris. The luxury market, the global luxury market is one, one third of that market is the Chinese market. The Chinese customers mm-hmm. fuel one third of the global luxury market. Now, how does that change the way that retailers behave? And hospitality institutions like hotels and restaurants, how does it change the way they behave? First of all, they hire Chinese staff. They begin to do all these things to accommodate purchasing power. And if and when women really realize the purchasing power they have, the decision-making power they have, to say, I'm not buying that because... This cosmetics company has never had a woman as its CEO, then the the cosmetics company is going to, they're going to, they're going to change their behavior. And I'm not saying you put someone in a, in a chief executive suite simply because they're a woman, but there's so many talented executives out there that you really have to look at a company that's never had a woman, a cosmetics company, you know, manufactures makeup and provides Goods and services for women has never had a woman running it. Come on. That's, that's not logical. Um, and so I think when women look at that and look at, Hey, we can, we can influence economic decisions. We can influence professional decisions. We can influence decisions in our family life. There's a tremendous amount of power that a woman has as a mother and a wife and you know, as a professional that They just have to look around. and I think think the situation is different for everyone, but they have to just look around and go, okay, what is my sphere of influence? And how can I make my life better and make the people around me better on a daily basis? But yeah, they really have to look at
0: themselves as being in the driver's seat. You know, it's interesting because the very first article that I wrote that I published to a larger audience was about the role of women in preserving family fortunes over centuries. And the the reason I wrote that article was because I couldn't find anything like it out there. And I, I at that point I I've read anything I could find about family fortunes and wealth preservations and the topics you and I talked about in Paris and on mm-hmm. our previous call. And then I realized story after story there were women behind each of the family's successes. Women that stepped in and ran businesses even in seventeen and eighteen hundreds when men went to war or they were arrested for various reasons because of revolutions happening mm-hmm. and You have family story after family story where women set the direction and provided the stability in moments of distress. They never really or hardly ever got full credit for the the work they did. But if you read between the lines and the records of family stories, you see that without these women, those families would not have been where they ended up. And I thought it was an untold story. And I'll include a link to that article. It's an older article. But it shares a lot of the stories that that you talk about in today's world, but as relevant in the past. Although I think today we more talk more about it than we did in the past. It it was men that took credit for all the successes, but there were women playing a major role in the. That's incredible.
1: I didn't. Yeah, the I knew the politics of the situation where in in Europe, where women would step in when a husband died, and they're waiting for the king to come of age. But I had no idea about the business aspect.
0: We have businesses as well. And sometimes the wives, when the husband was gone, had a a special vote or a role in decision-making so that the kids get along when the father is gone. So these are all little untold stories, but they're not so little when you think about the continuity of a family business or a family fortune over generations. And I, I think there are some fascinating lessons that we can take away from the past and use in today's world that you talk about how women have such a big, powerful role in decision-making at home and with the purchasing power. What What I like about your book, also in the early pages, you mentioned how the starting point doesn't matter and the age doesn't matter. And all that matters is that you want to join what you call the true nobility and you define it as somebody that wants to be a better person tomorrow than they are today. Can you talk about that? I, I thought it's, it's very welcoming that you don't have to your starting point basically doesn't matter, as long as you want to join us on this journey. That's the way I read it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. I I think
0: that I think
1: there's a lot of pressure that can discourage women and say, Hey, you you know, you're not thin enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not this enough, you're not that enough, and social media has made it worse. But I that if a woman has pulse and she has A direction and she has any kind of vague idea of how to accomplish it. A vague idea all the way down to a really detailed action plan. If you've got, if you, if you're healthy or even if you're not healthy, if you're alive and you have something you want to pursue and you've got some idea of how to get there, you're as worthy of that goal and and enjoying the rewards of achieving it as anybody. That's big. that's the egalitarian nature of this nobility, which is an ironic thing to say. That is, that's, that's the really, it's just a baseline. It's like Mm -hmm. you're on this planet, you're alive, you have something you want to accomplish for yourself or for the world, whatever it is. And you start taking steps toward that, that's worthwhile. And you're worthy of every, all the good things that come to you out of that endeavor.
0: I like that. It's very inviting. As long as you want to basically grow and and become a better person tomorrow, you're welcome to to join us on this journey. That's how how it reads. And I thought it was a wonderful way to invite people. You write a lot about education in all your books or most of your books. And I thought it was really powerful because I grew up with the idea that education is something that nobody can take away from you. Everything else can be lost and, and money can be taken away and property can be lost or destroyed. But education is something that you always have. And you write in your book, education is your way up, it's your way out, it's your weapon, it's your shield, it's your light. It's yours forever. Once you have it, it can never be taken away. Can you talk more about it? You see it as an investment in yourself and something that can help in life and empower people. Can you talk about that? In what kind of education you have in mind?
1: Yeah, education is a very broad term, A and, lot, and most often when I'm talking about it and when other people are talking about it, they're talking about the formal curriculum that you would get in high school and college and graduate school, and that is important. But you, you really can't underestimate getting to education for a lifetime and say, okay, you spend four years in high school, you spend four years in college, and you go live the rest of your 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and you don't learn anything, okay, you kind of drop the ball. But if you take education and look at it as a lifetime endeavor of, all right, I didn't get a chance to get a formal education, but I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to read. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, find resources wherever they are. And I think reading is the most powerful thing you can do. Of course you can watch YouTube videos and learn skills and learn how to do things, but reading is the most powerful thing that you can do. In order to continue to educate yourself throughout your life, because that's going to make the difference. People are going to come out of college and they'll have a baseline of an education with a college degree. But right. the, the continuing education that they do is going to make the difference in their quality of life, their professional progress and, and, and really what kind of, what kind of environment their children end up experiencing because you, you, can, if you stop learning when you're 22, you're in big trouble because mm-hmm. the world, the world is going to change and learning is not simply just keeping up with it. It's, it's a way to, to enrich your own life and to understand it. When you understand the world better, the first thing that I, that I hear people say when they, when they read a book or they, they've gone to college or they've experienced something in pursuit of education, one of the big things is, oh my gosh, other people have felt the same way I do. Other people have gone through this. I'm not a. This is not the first time this has ever happened to somebody. Right. And and that's that sense of not being isolated is the first step to being empowered. I'm not mm-hmm. alone. And the second, the second thing I think is education is a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. If you don't want, if you don't want people to judge you on how you look, if you don't want people to judge you on Your skin color. If you don't want to be judged on where you came from, go get an education. Go get an education and be create value in yourself. Where people will look at you and go, you know what? I don't care where that person came from. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care what their religious background is. I don't care what their sexual preference is. I need somebody who really knows accounting, and Mm -hmm. this person really knows accounting, and I'm going to hire them. And 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 it's not simply a commercial endeavor to to make progress financially, but it's also a character building exercise where you go, Okay, I know who I am. And it the education that I've taken in, like you say, nobody can take it away from you. The education yeah. that I've absorbed is a big part of that. And one of the one of the most powerful one of the most powerful examples of this is a documentary. It's been on PBS in the United States and it's been on Netflix and it's called College Behind Bars. Oh, wow. And it is, a there's a barred college program. I don't think it's still happening, but they, they filmed process a prison inmate, Mm -hmm. many of whom didn't have a high school education. They not eighth grade, ninth grade. They were running the streets, get into trouble and they, became criminals. They ended up in jail and Bard college brought professors into the prison. Mm -hmm. And you watch these young men and women who couldn't, they couldn't articulate their thoughts and emotions at the start of the film. And they are educated by professors. And, and Bard is a serious small college in the East coast of the United States. I mean, it's, I've got a friend who's going there right now, Mm -hmm. but it's, it, it's a really top level school, and you see the vocabulary change, you see the demeanor change, you see the emotional architecture of these people change because they get an education. They talk about Hamlet and his dilemmas and and six months before that, they had nothing, they knew nothing, and so you see the the transformative power that's what it is it's transformative. the power to change people. Almost at a cellular level by giving them an education. And, and yeah, I, you know, if, if you want people to not care about what you look like, what what skin color you have, what's your religious thing? And if you want me to stop talking about it, get an education. <laughs> that's really, that's really the thing. But college behind bars will give you a visual walking, talking example of, of how powerful an education can be. And it doesn't matter when you start. It doesn't matter how you do it, mm-hmm. but, but it is the most, you know, the poorest people in the world and the richest people in the world are making sure that kids get an education.
0: And I remember listening to a talk, and it was called Education is Freedom. I have to look it up, but the idea that education gives us freedom. And listening to you, I wrote down a couple of notes. One was you talked about the shared experience when young people or people in general go back to school or want to learn. They see that other people have had the same experience. And the reason I cut my attention is that working with wealth inheritors, wealth creators, when they come to us and they talk to us, for a moment they think they're the only ones and the first ones in history to experience all that they're experiencing that comes with inheriting wealth or creating substantial wealth in their lifetime. And when they sit down with us, they realize, oh, there are other people that have gone through this and we can actually learn from their mistakes. And we don't have to repeat those mistakes. And I find this moment very empowering when they realize there is this knowledge, accumulated knowledge of the things that work and the things that don't work. And what may seem like just your own experience is a shared experience of other people in similar circumstances. And education is a great way to broaden your perspective and see and learn from other people that have experienced it. The second thing I wrote down, I was thinking about degrees and knowledge for lack of a better you know, label, but degrees, degrees are becoming more and more expensive these days, especially in the US. But knowledge is becoming cheaper. You can get a course. I mean, tens of hours of very technical courses in anything you want for very small amounts of money. So I see this big contradiction. So if you want to pursue knowledge and skill, a lot of things you can learn you can get get books at a relatively low price or you can even borrow them for free so the knowledge is almost free and i i don't think it's fair to say but it's close to it and and then the degrees became so expensive how do you re- reconcile that when you think of acquiring education between the degrees and the knowledge one is becoming out of reach for you know a lot of people and the other one seems to be so cheap that people don 't even care <laughs> to look look at it <laughs> don't bother
1: look oh it's on the internet. Why do I need to know that yeah i think I think that's a tough I think that's a tough issue to address fairly because and I think it depends partly on the person's objectives if I have a a relative who is going to be a welder and mm-hmm. he's going straight in that direction that's what he enjoys that's what he's very capable of, of doing and and he's he's not in a, in a certain sense for his economic livelihood, he will not need to study shakespeare or 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 have the exp- have the expense or experience of a college experience with a four year degree that would set him back a hundred thousand dollars or something right. and uh, there is the there is the social and intellectual exposure. An enriching process that happens when you go to college, when you are thrown in as a freshman in college. My mother said, she, and she was blessed with having a lot of experiences in her life, but she says, I'll never know what it was like to go away as and be a freshman in a dorm room with a bunch of other freshman girls mm-hmm. that first day at college. And so that experience has value. Now, the price you put on it is another thing. I think there's a, there's an aspect of learning to socialize with people that you don't know to make small talk until you get to know people that you've just met at, at a party or at a, some other social function. I think the importance of meeting people who are completely different than you and hold completely different perspectives than you do. I think that is a mind expanding experience that people need to have. I won't say everyone, but a, a lot of people need to have that experience. And so yes, student debt is a serious issue and we've got to, I think we've got to hold universities accountable when you're paying, when you're paying presidents of university millions of dollars a year, you're paying the football coach at a university millions of dollars a year. And then your tuition fees are you know hundreds of thousands of dollars over a four-year four course. So I think there's a I think it's a complex issue. Mm. I don't think I know enough about it to say this is how we solve it, but I think each person has to weigh the importance of a college education, the degree versus picking up skills that you can learn really online in online classes. There there's a social element it, and there is an I think there's a comprehensive element to the educational process that's missing if you simply go after knowledge. But if you go after knowledge, and that's what you need, and that's what you want,
0: by all means, go for it. It made me think, you know, we have interns now and then that spend a few weeks with us in the summer. And a few years ago, we, we had a few interns that came from really good schools. And And I was sitting them with them and talking, and they were telling me how they feel that they're not learning enough at the college or university and then they go online and they find specialized courses in valuation in all kinds of stock market related topics and then they take those courses on top of the courses that they take at school and i was thinking how they merge the two worlds which is you know getting the degree but then they feel like the degree is not enough <laughs> they they want even more knowledge and sometimes the professor might not have enough time to sit down with every single person and explain something so they go online and they have a, a whole course that they could take at their own pace and then one particular thing they can go in very deep. I was very impressed because it's a very different university experience that I had. I would go to the library and find a book and if I (laughs) I wanted something extra, I would find it in a book. But now there are online courses that you can buy for for sometimes tens of dollars and you get the best of the best in a particular field that explains something in 30 hours. And if you want, you can really go very deep. So I think it's fascinating how... Each gener- generation finds a way how they can pursue knowledge. And I think it's very inspiring to see. That's you, incredible. It, it is really impressive. It's, it's a lot of ambition. And I think they're self propelled in that sense. They're not waiting for somebody to tell them you should look into this. They go and look into it. And I, I can only imagine where this will take them. I think it's, it's very inspiring. In your book, you share many secrets, but one of the old money secrets that you share is that life is most fully lived with a direction and purpose. I really paused and it made me think. And I obviously agree, but can you tell me more about that direction and purpose in life?
1: Yeah. I think, I think the direction and purpose aspect of it. I think when people discover that it all begins with a huge misconception that, that we're sold, which is, Once you get to a certain point, once you make a million dollars, once you get that corner office, or once you star in that film, once you reach a certain stationary point in life, that's when you're going to be happy, and that's when you're going to be satisfied, and that's when you're going to be fulfilled, and emotionally nourished, and financially rewarded. It's this destination. When you have a purpose in life, then... All that other stuff takes care of itself, and wh- and that's what I have found. You know, when when I, like when you and I were having lunch in Paris, you said, you know, your fulfillment, the, the fulfillment that you get is, I get to, I get to help these people not make the same mistake twice. <laughs> you know, I have this true. other, <laughs> okay, here's these other client made this mistake, benefit from their mistake and prosper, and mm-hmm. so. But your purpose, I think. And And this is what I found with a lot of very happy and successful people is their purpose trip. And that purpose transcends, "Oh, I've made this much money," or "Oh, I you know I, I'm recognized on this, or I have this many followers online. If there's a purpose behind it, then that's where you're really going to find, and it's, the purpose is outside of you. That's Mm -hmm. the, that's the other thing is the purpose is what you're going to deliver and give to the world. What, what thing of value are you going to give to? For me, it's stories. Mm -hmm. You know, it's information and it's stories. It's like, here's a, here, here's a philosophy. Here's a story. And that's, that's what I share and that's what I give. And for each person, it's a different thing. As long as it's constructive, as long as it's, directed at other people, delivering something to other people. I'm going to put my kids through college. Okay. I'm going to put my kids, that's what you're going to do. You're You're going to make sure your kids get through college. You're going to pay for that. You're going to make sure they're safe. However you do it, that's your purpose. And you'll do more for other people than you do for yourself. And you'll feel more satisfaction in doing something for other people than you do for doing something for yourself. And so that's That's what I see, and and that takes, whether you're making money or making enough money, it takes all the stuff off the table.
0: It's interesting because sometimes we get the biggest satisfaction from something that brings no money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Somebody gets a good night's sleep or I see a smile and that brings us more joy than a monetary compensation. But I think in your case, and you and I have spent quite a bit of time together, both in person and, and in recording, I see that you have a calling. Because you have all this knowledge, all those principles, all those ideas. You observe the wor- world, but you have a calling to share it because you could keep it all to yourself or share it just with a handful of people in your life. But you, you chose to write it down. It makes you, you know, exposed and vul- vulnerable because you're sharing a lot of very intimate stories. But you, it's your calling and I can see it's a very powerful calling. And I can imagine there are more books coming from Byron, but correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yes, there are. There are.
1: No, it's really, and, and it's a sense of satisfaction. And, and, and yes, I know people have to put food on the table. I know they have to pay the rent. I know they got student loan bills and, and it's a hard thing to say, follow what What you're passionate about when you've got all that stacked against you. And it may be, you know what, do what you have to do five days a week and follow your passion on the weekends, but find a way to have that purpose flow through you and and out into the world. And then that's really, that's, that's really it. And, and I, I can imagine probably having the same conversation with your clients who have inherited a lot of money and don't have to work. Well, okay. What do I do? I don't mm-hmm. have to work. What do I do? Find something you're passionate about. be busy. I wouldn't want to be.
0: I wouldn't be the one to tell them that. That's your job. I... <laughs> it's it's fascinating to see what happens because we. I mean, most of the people don't really have a moment to think about it. And as you said, they have to find a job that pays the bills, and then hopefully they they like what they do. But if you pause for a second, you put yourself even in an imaginary situation where you don't have to work again for a paycheck, what would you honestly do with the rest of your life? And I think that moment of reflection, even if you're not yet in that position, I think enriches your life in a wonderful way where you realize, well, there are so many other things I didn't pursue or I could pursue that would take me in a whole different direction. And my wife gives me a hard time, but early on when we started dating, And we were both very busy with our careers. I would we would go on a walk in the in Central Park and I would ask her, What would you do (laughs) if you didn't have to work for a paycheck? And and at first she didn't like the question because it was it was a frustrating question because you know, it's an uncomfortable place to be because you start to question all the choices you've made so far, which were driven by what's the desirable career path, what's impressive, what brings the right paycheck, and so on, and you start to think what would really bring me lasting joy and fulfillment that's beyond a paycheck and i think that has enriched our life thinking that way and i think it's it's fun to see where it can take you even in as you said in this very moment you might have to hold on to the 5 day or 6 day job but just to think about it on on the weekend or in the evening what is it that you would like to do if you didn't have to work for money i think oh. it's it's a it's a fascinating experiment
1: it is challenging
0: it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And I think it brings up a lot of emotions and frustrations, but it's a good place to start to really think what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And, and new ideas can pop up. I attended a Omaha Berkshire meeting where Buffett and Munger speak. And I met a lot of really nice people, and I haven't been in a while. And it was my first since after COVID. And, and I wrote a book and wrote an article, Return on Kindness. And I realized how much kindness there is among people in the business world, especially the people that Buffett somehow attracts in his circle. And when I was reading your book, you share an advice that I really like. You say that you can be competent and even tough in business and life without being mm, ruthless, mean, sarcastic, and nasty. I really like the sound of that. I think the overall corporate and business culture is improving in that sense, that it's not promoting unkind people. It's kindness that wins in the long run. Can you talk about that? I I know it's an advice for women, but I think it's an advice for all of us that being kind can get us places. We don't have to be like some of the characters we see in some movies that <laughs> make us think that we have to be really unpleasant human beings to to get ahead. I I really like that.
1: Yeah, you know, there's there's you're absolutely right. You know, movies and television promote the tough, ruthless, almost sociopath businessman as being. The, the alpha male and the, and the person to aspire to be the Gordon Gecko of Walsh, where Michael Douglas played the ruthless investor trader. And, and so you see that and, and, and then you turn around and have a conversation. Like I had, I was back in Los Angeles a couple of years ago and I went to a guy's place of business and we were waiting to be able to go out to lunch. And so his boss came through. And his boss high, you know, chatted for a minute and they had some business to take care of. And then the, the boss and he was the owner of the company. And my friend says, I, I love that guy. And I said, well, the like a, he's like a fair boss. Does he pay you well? And kind of, I mean, that's good, but you know, kind of what behind it? And he said, no, he said, I, I'd do anything for that guy. He's just a nice, you know, he, he's considerate. He asked about my wife you know, ask about my kids. And, and the, I think what you're, what you alluded to is absolutely the truth. The power of being a human being mm-hmm. is underestimated, you know, and, and I think that's, I think that's, I, I hope that the business world is, is evolving in that direction because we've had enough of the ruthless, the ruthlessness. We've had enough of the unchecked greed and the, the meanness. And, for women in in taking this on board, the women are going to be judged by they're going to be held to a different standard. If a man is tough and he's ruthless, well then he's a good leader. I'm good, he's yeah. he That's kind of what you want in a leader. And if a woman does it, well, she's just you know they come up with all sorts of names that I'm not going to mm-hmm. repeat. And you know she's vindictive and every quality that a man would take on when a woman takes it on in the same spirit it's, it works to her disadvantage in the long term and so you know i i see a lot of women in in this part of france in the countryside here who are running their own places and have been running their own family properties here and i've talked with i talked with one about 2 weeks ago and she said she said the way you have to do this is you have to be firm with a smile. And, and I thought that is just key. She deals with men all day long running this property that she has. And, but she has to be firm, but with a smile. And, and that sort of diplomacy is just the most effective way to do things in the long run. You know, it, it just is. And I, I, there are times that I would love to scream and yell at people, but it's just not effective in the long term. You you just have to back off and be firm with a smile.
0: I'd like to think that kindness is the way I see from different stories that it's still something that exists out there and people feel that through being unkind you can get places. And I think both to men and women, I think the advice would be kindness is the highway to success <laughs> and just let's let's embrace it. So speaking of diplomacy, I was reading parts of the book out loud, and, and my wife was here in the room, and we were both laughing in one sentence that I have to share with you that I thought was really precious. And you wrote, someone once said that diplomacy is the art of telling someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the journey.
1: That, that is, yeah, that, that's probably the, the ultimate definition of diplomacy. The, the quote, I think, was originally attributed to Winston Churchill, but then they realized that he didn't actually say it. You know, it's really it, it really is, it's like we were talking about just a second ago, it's, it is keeping things on a positive note, looking for an opportunity rather than a problem, looking for a solution, being willing to explore and, and take ideas from everyone, And and kind of setting your ego aside and going, you know what, if we can get this done, if I have to compliment this person and point out the good things about them in order to get them to come down and back off the anger and back off the meanness, let me take that extra step. Because what what people don't realize, and 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 it's what you kind of realized, is that kind of behavior is going to stack up in your favor Mm -hmm. over the long haul. And you're right. People people will treat you more favorably because maybe you didn't try and win every argument. Maybe you didn't try and make your point in front of a group of people or put someone down in front of a group of people. and And tried to, took a little extra time to point out the good things that they were doing in their job, not just the problem that you were having with them. And so diplomacy is not deception. It's not being deceitful and lying to people, but it is, there's a hundred ways to, to tell someone that something's wrong and the way that they're going to accept it and perhaps change or be persuaded is 90% not what you say, but how you say it. And so that, that art of diplomacy is, it's just key. It's just key because you're not going to knock down any doors.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think that men can learn quite a bit from women on that front, just from personal oh, yes. experience. I think yes. women somehow can pause and listen and wait before they jump into conclusions. And, and men, on average, have a propensity to act no, before I, they think. And that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that invites more conflict than, than yeah, here. I mean, my,
1: I'm guilty of jumping in. When someone starts a sentence, I know what the rest of the sentence is going to be. And so I'm already in there. With yeah. an, with an objection or with a <laughs> contradiction or, you know, and so, yeah, that's, that's very true. And, and it's, and, you know, if women can realize that the power and influence that they have with that mindset of just listening, being empathetic and delivering difficult truth to people gently, it's, it's a powerful position because I, I think A lot of times it's a lot easier to hear it from a woman who approaches it that way than it is to hear it from a guy who approaches it as, Hey, listen, we got a problem. You know, people go on the defensive almost immediately. So, but your analogy, your story about people getting their work product to you quicker because you
0: were nicer is that's, that's the way of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, maybe it's a secret. Maybe it's not a secret. I think everybody should know about (laughs) it. (laughs) It would make our lives so much better. The big themes in your book are around choices, options, taking your time, not being in a rush. And you have the same advice for, for women, for I think for men as well, about getting married and starting a family. Could you share more? You basically say, wait until you're ready. That's how I read it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's the truth and it weighs, with regards to family and marriage, the, the, the weight, the counterbalance is not equal for men and women. And and that's because if a woman has a child before they're eighteen, or before they have a college degree, before they're financially set, the burden of raising that child falls predominantly on the woman most of the time. When right. you say when you say oh she's or this person is a single parent, most of the time you're talking about the woman. Mm-hmm. The guy the guy is rarely going to be oh yeah I've got cust- I've got full custody of my child. And I'm holding down a full time job, and I'm getting them to little league practice, and I'm doing the laundry, and I'm buying the groceries. You don't know, hear a lot of guys saying that. What they're saying is, I got I got my kids on I got my kid on weekends while the single parent, the child's mother, is doing everything else and holding down her full time job. So, so this is this is kind of a more critical issue facing women than it is men. And I talk about it because. I call them tent poles. You've got a tent pole, like you're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And a tent pole is basically, okay, I'm going to, this is my life. This big unshaped canvas tent is my life. And I'm going to, I'm going to prop it up with these poles. And so the first pole is when I turn 18 and I graduate from high school, am I going to college? Am I going to a technical school to learn a skill? Am I going into the armed services so that I can see the world and grow up and, have some, you know, get some help with my education, or are, are that you going to make that choice, or are you simply go, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go get whatever job I can. Do. So there you are at 18. That's one tentpole. Now you chart, you go seven or ten years forward. You're 25, 28, or 30. There's another tentpole. Do you get married? How long do you date before you get married? How financially set do you get before you get married? And then you face kind of another mini temple right after that is okay children when am i going to have them how many am i going to have are we ready to have children and people think oh you just you know you're ready when you're ready nobody's ever ready yeah people are ready you know, they have a plan even if they don't have a certain amount of money in the bank they have a plan of like this is what we're going to do this is the support we have you know the in-laws live a mile away, so they could help on weekends if we need to do this, if we're both working, if we've got this. Think it through. And then when you're 45, the kids are out of the house. You have a chance, oh, do I want to change careers? Do I want to really supercharge my career and really put in the time and work and really go to the top of my field between 45 and 65? And then the final tentpole is, okay, at 65. What do I want to do? Do I want to mentor? Do I want to start teaching? Do I want to travel the world? Do I want what I want to do? Do I want to write a book? Do I want to share my knowledge and all my information, uh, and my wisdom? And everybody basically does these things in life. It's just when do they do that? And that right. makes the whole difference is between 18 and 28, you're going to be a completely different person. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make it be a completely different parent and you're going to have a completely different set of opportunities, not just for yourself, but for your, in options for your child. And so, so that's what I talk about. There is a natural rhythm to life and, and it's, it's kind of, you can't force, you know, some people are prodig- prodigies and they can learn things very quickly. And, but most people, it takes a certain amount of time and a certain amount of personal growth. And if you go with those seasons in your life and keep things kind of within those parameters, you fare a lot better. There's there's a reason people get an education and then start, then choose a partner and mm-hmm. then have children and then go on with it. You know, it's they're building blocks, they're sequential elements that happen best in a particular order and when they're well paced. I guess also I like the
0: sound of that <clears throat> basically finding your optimal time to make certain decisions in life. I, I was going to ask you about a big question that came up in our previous recording and our conversation in, in Paris as well. And it's a question about sudden wealth and it's whether it's inherited or created. You give an advice to keep it a secret at the beginning. And I like that. And I'm curious to explore it with you because the natural reaction when you receive sudden wealth. It's to go out and spend some and celebrate in a big way. Definitely tell everyone about it. But you recommend the opposite, and 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 I agree with you for various reasons. But tell me more. Why keep um, it a secret?
1: You know, the, the reason to keep it a secret is first of all, it's for most people. Maybe not some of the clients that you deal with who grow up with a certain level of comfort and affluence and 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 wealth. But for a lot of people, sudden wealth is very, at a minimum, it's very disruptive. Mm-hmm. And at the maximum, it's very destructive. And so it, it's disruptive because our identity, this may psychologists or psychiatrists may disagree or agree with this, but I believe that our personal identity is interwoven between our social position, our family history and our economic position. Our social position is where we are with our friends or even in the business world, whether we think of ourselves as middle class, upper class, lower class, whatever, working class. And when you inherit uh, or come in or win the lottery, whatever it is, when your financial situation changes abruptly, you have a shock to the system. Your personal definition of who you are, your identity has to be recalibrated it has to be reconsidered it has to be adjusted and everything else in your life now has to oh how do we handle that oh well now i've got this girlfriend and i'm richer than she is now well how do i handle i have these friends no not as rich as i am well how do i handle that or do i go out and get all new friends who are as rich as i am and you may not realize you have all these conversations going on in your head well okay now here's my job now i I don't need $50,000 a year. I'm, you know, I've got 2 million bucks in the bank. All all these things, you know, there used to be a video game years ago called Asteroids and you would try and shoot all these asteroids before they hit your ship. You know, it was a very primitive video game, but you've got all these asteroids coming at you and you've got to try to, first of all, articulate what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And secondly, realize yeah. Okay. That's what I'm feeling. I don't know what to do about it. And I don't know how to manage it. It was one of the things, you know, there was a, there was a conversation that a journalist had with John F. Kennedy Jr. before he was killed in the plane crash. And he said, I grew up in this, having this position of being John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy's son. And I had to learn to manage that. Mm-hmm. And it took him, you know, 20 plus years to get a handle on. How do I manage everybody knowing who I am mm-hmm. and having all the opportunity in the world? and so the management of first of all, what's going on internally, and then secondly, how do i how do I adjust my relationships with the world, the external elements mm-hmm. how, do I ta- do I change where I live? Do I change the way I dress? Do I change the car I drive? Do I quit my job? Do I ch- change my social circle? What do I do about my relatives? All these external things are secondary. And so the easiest thing to do is just keep it a secret and deal with this stuff. You know, talk with people, you know, talk. People can talk with someone like yourself. They can talk with their accountant who has other high net worth individuals and they can talk. You talk with these people in private Mm -hmm. and and but you just don't broadcast it. It's just a bad idea. It brings on. All of the bad it brings on all the bad things, you know that you've seen. You, you've seen, I'm sure, in, in your field and, and with your profession. It just brings on all the bad things. It brings mm-hmm. a third level, not just your internal stuff, then the right. external stuff. It brings all of the social stuff coming back at you. That that's- you just go, you know, I don't know how, and that's when people go crazy.
0: Yes, it's uh, the good advice is to take your time. And keeping it a secret, I think it's a good idea because it gives you time to adjust and make all those choices that you mentioned. I was going to ask you about a, a particular situation that happens often these days where The substantial portion of the wealth gets passed on when people are in their 50s and 60s, and sometimes even later. So because the parents live longer, we all live longer. And at that point, the individuals, and and I'm thinking of of women specifically, might be with families and kids on the way out of their homes going to college, and a husband or a partner that's been a breadwinner for a few decades of their life. And suddenly, the balance changes when the woman inherits substantial wealth from A relative and all of the sudden she's the one with substantially higher resources. What happens then? Have you thought about it?
1: You know, I, I, I would just, I would categorize that issue under marriage. And I would say in marriage, you're going to have to have very long, honest conversations about how you're feeling and what you're thinking and how the other person might be feeling and mm-hmm. think, and I think for a woman, the most powerful thing that she could do if, in that situation is say, "Honey, let's sit down and talk, mm-hmm. and then sit down and talk and say, "I've inherited this money, you've been working all of our married life, and you've made more money, and now I have more money, but we're still a married couple right how are How are you feeling about it mm-hmm. and then just listen Mm -hmm. Because it may be that the answer doesn't come up in that conversation from a man, Mm -hmm. because I think for for me and I think for a lot of other guys, the gestation period between having something come into our awareness and having the words to articulate how we feel about it Mm -hmm. can be hours or days or weeks or months. The husband will come back around and go, you know, I've been thinking about the conversation we had and this is the way I feel about it. I feel like hey, it makes me feel a little insecure, like you don't need me anymore. It makes me feel really happy for you. It makes me feel really happy for us. But I'm not certain of how I can behave now. Is it my money to spend as well as your money to spend? What can, What do we do for the kids? What do we do for the grandkids? How can we make sure that this is a legacy that endures You'll be. I think there's going to be a whole range of emotions and ideas and feelings that are going to come up, and and you're just going to have to listen and be honest about it, because people think that it's the greatest thing in the world. Right. And inherit, inheriting a lot of money is a wonderful thing, but it comes with a set of responsibilities, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Even if you're a single person who's 25 years old, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, it rolls out and affects other parts of your life. And that is just, that My ni- nice feeling is that's just part of being married, if you're a woman who's married, and you've got to have a conversation about it.
0: So the key here is communication. And I think a big point is that the inheritance is not influencing just one individual, but everybody in that individual's life. I think that's very important to realize that it has a an impact on all the dynamics and all the relationships and taking your time to process it. I think that's, that's a good advice that you have. I have a quote that I really liked about the role that women play in the world. And you share that we as men often seek women to make out, make our world a loving, civilized and decent place. And we as a planet now need women more than ever in leadership positions. Our governments, corporations are in desperate need of a new vision a nuanced perspective a fresh intelligence can you talk more about it we touched on it a little bit when we talked about diplomacy but the role that women can play in the world and help us shape it into a better place for the future our future and the future of our kids
1: yeah i, I think i think that because women bring life into the world and because they nurture children i I think that they have a different sensitivity and a different awareness and a different level of empathy. Mm -hmm. And it's not being sexist. It's, it's like it's a quality that I haven't seen in a lot of men, Mm -hmm. but there's a, there's a intuition there. There's a, a, a heightened sense of awareness that I think could go a long way to addressing some of the environmental issues that we have and a lot of the social issues that we have is, you know, as far as how we help people out of poverty how we empower people with education how we empower people in communities i think sometimes men look at things from a very distance perspective like okay this is our policy this is oh this is a program that we can make work this is you know it's very analytical and it's good in a certain sense because that's a lot of the way that governments function right but on a on a more personal level I think women can connect on a more personal level in a leadership role. I think women can walk in to a tense situation regarding foreign policy. And I think that they can be, I think they can embody the qualities of the men in the room who had mothers and who have wives and who have daughters and say, we've got to think about the mothers, the wives and the daughters that that are not in this room. But that you claim to represent and that need to be taken care of and need to be protected and need to be educated and need to have access to healthcare. I think that that level of empathy, and I wouldn't say emotion, but it's really empathy. It's, it's a sensitivity to the other parts of the equation, the other elements in the program or the policy. I, I think in a leadership position, I think women can be tremendously influential and, and really do a lot of
0: good. I agree. I think there's room for improvement. Byron, you know that I like to end those conversations with success stories and our definition of success. So this one will do a little bit different. And I wanted to ask you about the women that you mentioned in your book. And after each chapter, every few chapters, you mention stories of real women from different points in time. And I think you have some stories from hundreds of years ago and some recent ones that overlap with our lifetime. Is there one story that really stands out that you want to share and who it was and what she did and why she would be a great example for women out there in the world?
1: Yeah. They, when we were living in Paris, Simone Veil was a, she was a French health minister. She was best known as being a health minister for, through several different administrations. Simone Veil died in 2017 and she was. Interred at the Pantheon in 2018, one of the few women who's buried in, at the Pantheon mm-hmm. in Paris. And she was a Holocaust survivor. Her, most of her family did not survive the Holocaust. She was a health minister in France, I think for 15 or 20 years. She was the first female president of the European Parliament for three or four years. And she, in 1975, she finally fought and won the right for women to have an abortion in France, just in nineteen seventy-five. And we were standing outside a cafe and the motorcade came by across the bridge at the Yale Saint Louis and crossed, passed right by us, and women were standing out on the street in tears. And they just said, She did so much for us. She did so much for us. And so I look at that and and, and here's someone who who barely made it out alive and accomplished all this. Stuff. And I thought you know, that's really an inspiration. That's an, in, of course, she's an inspiration to, she's one of the, she's maybe the most revered woman in France. If you took a survey, she'd be in the top three with Marie Curie, Joan of Arc. She's in the top three. And I look and I said, I thought to myself, you know, that's an inspiring story. And there was one story that I thought about Simone Weil that was just really telling. And she was sitting in a very nice restaurant and she, was obviously a very powerful and influential woman, and her politics were known far and wide by everyone, especially by her family. And her family was sitting around having dinner with her, and her son, who at that time was in his early 20s, made a chauvinist comment at the dinner table at this very nice restaurant. And Simone Vay stood up, took the carafe of water off of the table, and poured it over her son's head. Wow. For making that comment. And I thought, you know what? Every woman in the world, they may not be able to be a French health minister. They may not be a survivor (laughs) of terrible things. They may not be president. They may not be interred at the Pantheon. Every time they bump up against a male chauvinist Mm commune, they can pour a bucket of water over somebody's head. And I just thought that is, that's my girl. That sums it up. (laughs) That sums it up. It's like, yep, you're my son, but you said something stupid and you will just have to deal with it. And I thought, you know, that's what women can do. They can, you know, it would be a fist fight if a guy did that to another guy, but a woman, a woman can, she can stand up to injustice. She can stand up to inequality. She can, she can stand up to men being uncivilized. And, and do things that a man can't do.
0: Uh huh.
1: Because, and, and a man will just, he will be helpless to, he will be helpless in many cases to know what to do in response to that. And I think
0: that's great. Well, I'm thinking that we need some buckets of water out there in the world. (laughs) And, and you know what else? I think there will be moments in my life going forward where I'm going to be in the room thinking we need a bucket of water right now. (laughs) Well, you tell
1: Megan, tell (laughs) Megan she has my permission to pour a crap of water over
0: anyone's (laughs) head. I like that. I'll tell her, but I think that's a beautiful way to to sum it up. Byron, it's always such a joy to talk to you, and I feel like every time we come up with new topics, new angles, new perspectives, and it's such a wonderful book, and it comes from a beautiful place where you want to share what you've learned, what you've learned from women in your life, and you want to empower all the women in the world to think differently, and I like that expression of being in the seat of their own life, and then take the direction and the purpose. And if they need a bucket of water, then take that bucket of water and keep going, and and live beautiful lives out there. I, I that's what I walked away with.
1: Well, thank you, Vogelmill. It's really I really enjoy us having time to talk and 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 like you say, explore these different
0: ideas and really just shine a light on what's possible for women. And something tells me, we'll do it all over again. And I know you can't tell me what the next book is, but you'll tell me at some point and I'd love to have you back. (laughs) Okay, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Goodbye. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.